We return this morning to Psalm 133, that short three-verse psalm, uh, the blessing of unity. As we began, we'll review just a moment and then continue there. But let's read the psalm together. Psalm 133, a song of degrees of David. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And notice the exclamation point. This is with urgency and zeal the psalmist is pointing together. So pointing to us. There's red lights and green lights flashing all around this, isn't it? You, You see the attention drawn to it. It is like, and he gives us two illustrations, the precious ointment upon the head that ran down the, upon the beard. Now, most of us, if we were thinking about oil running down us, we'd think, oh, my, how uncomfortable. That'd be totally outside of our comfort zone. But this speaks of the anointing of the high priest and the blessing of the Lord. It is like the, anoint, the ointment that ran down upon the head and ran down the beard, and uh, uh, the, even Aaron's beard. He's very specific about whose anointing he's referring to. That went down to the skirts of his garments, as of the dew of Hermon, as of the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. We see this declaration about unity. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And this is what the Lord desires for us. For us to to live single-mindedly, encouraging one another, loving one another, with our hearts directed toward him. Now, Satan hates this, doesn't he? Is he not the author of discord and strife and confusion? And every evil work, the scripture says, in pride, only by pride cometh contention. And so we need to keep that in mind as we are on our journey before the Lord. And Satan hates such unity because he knows what it can accomplish in the, the work of the Lord. A threefold cord is not easily broken, is it? But if he can unwind it and unravel it and separate it and make it weak, and then all kinds of havoc can be wreaked. Satan tries and desires to bring about disharmony among the Lord's people. It's something God prizes and, and, and that, that the unity of, of his people and something Satan hates. But they're always counter-opposite, one, the one to the other, aren't they? Remember... In Proverbs six seven six nineteen, in that list of things, six things, and then as an emphasis, the Holy Spirit says, "Yes, seven are an abomination to Him." And the seventh was He that soweth discord among brethren. Can you think of an, uh, uh, anything worse? Can you think of someone almost? And I'm saying this uh, facetiously with the ministry of dis- disharmony. You've seen people like that, haven't you? They seem to think it was their goal in life to go around and wreak havoc. And they do. But what they may not know and should know but don't know, they're just an emissary of Satan because God's people are seeking to restore and to bind up and to bless and to help and to encourage. Now, this is not unity at any cost. Please know that when the Scripture talks about something, there's a true and there's a false. There's an ecumenicism around among churches and all that. Let's just lay aside all doctrine, all differences and to put aside everything and just love one another. We hear that, and we hear it especially at this time of year. But this is not a unity at the, uh, at the divorcing of the truth of God's word. If, if the unity at all is centers around the, the veracity of God's word, the saviorhood of Jesus Christ, his deity, his virgin birth, the inspiration of the scriptures, those things are non-negotiable. Now, we're to be kind and gracious as much as possible with all people, but this spiritual there's no spiritual unity that is not a common foundation, a common bond. And, of course, it's around the deity of our Savior. You take that from the scriptures, you have nothing. 
And so uh, that's why it's so important to emphasize his virgin birth and the, the things that the, the Scripture teaches about him. So please make no mistake about it. That sounds good. Let us lay aside all that, that uh, we don't agree on and just uh, and have things in common. Well, what do you have in common? If you're gathering in the name of the Lord and around his, his word, these are the core, this is what God says and points to, and so we must do the same. In his great high priestly ministry and prayer before he went to the cross, our Lord said that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, and they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Granted, this is a difficult thing, but all things that are prized, all things that are rare, all things that are precious are, are difficult to come by. This is not something that is done without a part of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Lord has to do that work in, in our midst. It is the one thing, though, this unity that the psalmist prizes that he, God says that will convince people that the church has something that the world does not offer. Sadly, some people may get more fellowship at the local bar than they would at some churches, you know. Someone to listen, things in common. I can tell you my worries and you can tell me mine and so forth. And, and really, but Satan, again, it's a counterfeit, isn't it, for what we should be and what the Lord would desire among his people. It is what the Holy Spirit does as he places believers in Christ. One of the true marks that conversion has taken place, that behold, all things have become new, there's a love for the brethren, people that we used to despise or couldn't get along with. Not that, that people are miraculously easy to get along with anymore, but we prize those things that God prizes and those relationships and those things that God tells us. It's what outsiders saw in the early church and marveled at. If you were to take a peek in the early church, and it should be this way today, you'd have seen a cross-section of society, with the exception of the very inception of the church at Jerusalem, which was almost all Jewish. But as the Lord stirred things up, caused persecution, scattered them, what happened? When they went out into the empire, the Roman Empire, and began preaching the word of God, you'd see a cross-section of Jew and Gentile, bond and free. And since slavery was a very real part of Roman society, many people in the church would be out of slavery. I have read in, the, in church history that it would not be uncommon for a master and the slave to be in the same congregation, as strong, weird as that would be to our thinking today. And sometimes the slave, the servant, would be a leader of the church and the master might not would be. And we get a touch of that in the little thank you note or the little note Philemon uh, from the Apostle Paul. You'd see rich and poor. We see Lydia, the seller of purple, a very wealthy lady. Barnabas, who sold property, must have been a man of means. Uh, we could go down through the, the scriptures and see that there was a cross-section of society from all walks of life. And the scripture tells us that God has broken down that middle wall of partition. There's neither bond nor free, male nor female, Gentile or Jew. And so we see that the church is not a club. It's not an exclusive club where rich people are certain high intelligence or whatever the criteria may be. The, the church is, is not an organization, although it, it should be organized. It is a living organism, a body, the scripture tells us, with different parts, all for a purpose and to work harmoniously. And if any part of the body, if your physical body is not working, there's problems in the whole of it, isn't it? And while you may compensate and, and learn, it still causes a problem for it to work, and we see that as we age, especially. Well, 
the, the early church shared and believed and, and, and things common. They centered around the apostles' doctrine, which was the, what our Lord instructed his apostles to teach. It became the epistles, the New Testament uh, body of Scripture, which included the Old Testament, the commentary on the Old Testament. Uh, they met for corporate worship and prayer and remembering the ordinances of the church. They continued steadfastly in these things and obeying our Lord's command to occupy, to do His work in His absence until He comes. That work order has never been rescinded. We're to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature teaching them to observe all things, the teaching ministry of the church, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them until I come, he tells us. That, so we have a, a large work order, and we, it takes unity to do that. While we're individually to give and to witness and to pray and to, and to worship, we're to do that corporately as well. Now, sometimes people get that uh, warped. They said, I can do just as well outside of the church as I can in the church. It's full of uh, flawed people. Yes, and you and I are flawed too. (laughs) So staying at home and not rubbing shoulders with those flawed people doesn't make the church any less flawless, does it? Uh, And in fact, if God had had designed it that way, he would have told us. the, The Christian life is not a solo event. It's more like a choir. We're to blend our voices together. And do you know what? When we all join together and do do this in the unity, the work of the Lord in unity, our Savior is greatly glorified. And the individual is not emphasized as far as uh, in, in, in getting the praise and the glory. We do it in such a way that the Savior is glorified. And that's what the way the Lord has designed it. Part of the reason the Lord has designed the, the worship of the church and the fellowship of the church in the way that he has. But notice the, the psalmist's praise of this unity. How good. Oh, he's giving a compliment to it, a, an acclamation of praise. This is good. This is important. How pleasant it is. Now, we like good things, don't we? And we like pleasant things. I was riding on a card recently. Some folks are having a housewarming about God's people living in quiet and pleasant places. Isaiah 33, verse 2, I think, is a beautiful verse. We like quietness and pleasantness in our homes, don't we? And we work at having peace in our homes. We wouldn't let a stranger or someone come in and, and criticize. Who'd put a picture like that on the wall? Or why? You wouldn't let somebody come in and disrupt harmony in your home and, and, and uh, criticize and, and tear up? And No. And so we work very hard to have a, a pleasant uh, and, and harmonious uh, uh, climate in our homes. And so the church is no less important. But it's a rarity. That's, the, that's an, the thing that is emphasized here. He says, behold, it's almost in a surprising way when we see this. Man's first sin, as we've noted, separated him from God. And his second sin separated him from his fellow man. You'll notice that the the, the law of God is divided into two sections. The first section are our duties toward God, and our, the second section is our duties toward men. But no one can force brotherhood. This is no fake, schmoozy kind of thing. I, I can't find the right words to describe it. You can, you can found the United Nations. You can found all kinds of organizations, promote all kinds of movements and clubs, but only a divine work in the heart can regenerate a heart. And only that divine work of the Holy Spirit can produce what we're talking about here. It is a precious treasure 
and one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, we talk about, and you hear about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Now, God is the creator of all men. In fact, he declares in his word, all souls are mine. But we are not God's children simply because we're born uh, as creatures on this earth. He owns us, we're his, but we're only his by, as, as a child of his by being born again. And by knowing his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith and repentance and faith in him. And even then, unity among God's people is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. One of the reasons I'm sure that God recorded the book of Acts, we see the church work through some stuff, don't we? Some problems. As the church began to grow and as the Lord began to unfold this mystery that was hidden to his Old Testament saints. Remember, Paul and Peter had to... Uh, be, Peter had to be taught with about dealing with the Jews one way in their presence and to the Gentiles. You know, he would eat with the Gentiles when the Jews weren't looking. And when the, when the, uh, and so, and Peter went and had to rebuke him for that. We're one in Christ. And so that shows us that we're all growing. We may have prejudices and things that have to be dealt with by a work of the Spirit. But it's not that there are no problems. The thing about unity is that it's being worked on, that we're growing in grace, that we're seeing the Lord remove those things that would, would hinder our love and our care and our unity for, for one another. And so this common link of salvation in Christ immediately makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. And remember, Paul writes to Timothy and tells him that, Timothy, I want you to treat all the women in the church as your mother, all those older than you, and all the younger ones as your sisters, and all the older men in the church as your brothers, and all the younger women in the church as your, as your sisters. And that will make a, a big difference because what do we do? We compensate. Well, that's the mother has some traits or daddy's that way or my sister. Well, you know, brother and sister relationships. But we know those relationships. We learn to look for those things and we learn how to get along with them, right? We give the benefit of the doubt, we might say. And so he says that same attitude carries over in the, the body of Christ because we are brothers and sisters and the, there are, we do have fathers and mothers in the faith. Now, this was a song of degrees of David, and this is a, a, appropriate because we've mentioned that David united the tribes. When David came to the throne, the, the, the nation had been under the rule of Saul and all of Saul's problems. Uh, there was division and strife. David found them, and he came to the throne, a dozen divided, fighting, infighting tribes. Nothing pretty about it. No, no unity about it. And because of that, since 12 together are better than, than one by themselves, they were open to the attack of enemies. They were suspicious of one another. And so David's rule, and one of the things we see in effective ministry is bringing uh, the church together. He brought the 12 tribes of Israel together, and he unified them and gave them a cohesion and a centralized uh, kingdom with the, the the holy city being, of course, in Jerusalem, the, the capital city. And David planned, made provision for the building of the temple, which for Judaism was the signifying thing that brought them into a centralized thought and mind and worship. And so David knew that, that that real unity for the nation had to be rooted and centered in a common faith, common things held, and in, in the faith in the living God, and in accordance to his word. And so let me say again, true unity has to flow from a believing in this book being the word of God and bowing to the will of God as he, we see it in his word. 
years later, this unity that David worked so hard for and the peace under his rule and, and Solomon's rule dissipated uh, by King Jeroboam. The Bible says, records of him, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Can you imagine that be what was written by your name in the history book? He made the, the nation to sin. What an epitaph. If we were to, we could say that was what's on his tombstone. This is the man who made Israel to sin. He led the northern tribes to revolt openly. And it was Jeroboam who, who used this disharmony to bring about the selfish, selfish goals. He, had, he instituted a parallel worship alongside Judaism with a golden calf. It comes again that uh, Israel made, when, uh, likened to the one Israel made when they came out of Egypt. Uh, when Moses was on the mount receiving the word of God. He changed the God-ordained feast days. Uh, you know, when God has ordained something, it's not up to us to change it. If he changes it, that's one thing. But a king comes along and says, well, I'll let the priesthood do this. We'll rearrange things, and, and we'll have feast days when they're more convenient, and we'll create another place for people to worship. And, and King Hezekiah saw the importance and the value of this, this uh, forgotten uh, psalm, song of David. And so he includes it in the Songs of Degrees when the scriptures are being canonized. And Israel had paid dear, dearly for her apostasies. So he let the remnant of the various tribes come and worship in Jerusalem. He wanted them to be reconciled to God. And Hezekiah worked at bringing about this unity. But then we see a description. We see the preciousness of it. We reemphasize from last week. But I want you to look now at the, the unity uh, how it is described in verses 2 and 3. He gives us a vivid picture. Now we can see the anointing oil being poured over Aaron's head and running down his beard and down his robes. Now he gives us two, spirit, two pictures, one a spiritual picture and the other a secular one. One has to do with the priest and the other has to do with the pasture. First we see the sacred, sacred picture. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garment. And so this was God's deliberate choosing of Aaron and his sons to be the high priest. Again, it was non-negotiable. Aaron didn't say, I'd like to be in my family to be the high priest, so choose us. God sovereignly set aside Aaron and his people, his descendants, to be the high priest. And uh, that was his choosing. And this was an open manifestation when uh, Aaron was anointed. And, and we think of the manufacturing of that ointment that is described for us here according to a recipe that God made in heaven and he gave to the earth. And we read there in Exodus chapter 30. He says, take also unto thee, in Exodus 30 and verse 23, three principal spices. So we're not told, we're just told generally how this ointment was made. Nobody really knows because he doesn't tell them how it was made. But that we know it contained practically three general spices of pure myrrh, 500 shekels, sweet cinnamon, half so much, 250 shekels, and of sweet calamus, 250 shekels, and of cassia, 500 shekels, after the shekel of the sanctuary, and of oil olive of a hen. And thou shalt make it an oil of holy ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary. It shall be an holy anointing oil. Well, that's all the scripture records for us, but Aaron and Moses were given the specific recipe from the Lord. 
the psalmist himself was an anointed man. Remember, as a youth, Samuel came to him out in his daddy's pasture and you might want to say pre-anointed him before he was officially made king. And it was years before David actually sat and, and ruled. And so he was anointed. David has five things to say about this oil that was poured upon Aaron's beard, which suggests the glory of his position. It's a type of Christ, and it speaks of Christ's majesty, Christ as the head of his church. We have an anointed head in heaven that we're to answer to and to worship and bow before. Nothing can change or alter this. A denomination can point and make a human head on earth, but that doesn't change the fact that Christ is the head, our anointed head in heaven. No preacher, no priest, no person can take that place. And no failure on the part of any member of the body of Christ can affect or change that Christ is the head of his church, and I will build my church. It is Christ's church. It is not an earthly denomination's or individual's church. It is his. That's why it's so precious. His majesty is manifest, and his fragrance fills all of heaven. My mother used to sing in a trio, a song I rarely hear, but I can hear today. My Lord has garments so wondrously fine, and myrrh their texture fills. And it speaks of coming out of the ivory palaces, did my Savior come into this world of woe, and is called out of the ivory palaces. Well, this is a picture of such the beauty of our Lord and the fragrance of his holy life. Not only was the oil poured on Aaron's head, but the ointment went down Aaron's beard. And this speaks of Christ's humanity. Our Lord took on flesh and came to earth, as we, at this particular time of the year, point to and emphasize. He was a true man, and he was God at the same time. And there was a glorious fragrance about him. And while physically, the scripture tells us there was nothing that would set Christ apart from the ordinary Jewish man of his day, there was something about his presence. There was something about his speech. He did not speak and and preach as the scribes and the Pharisees. The people saw in him the the, the work of the Lord and, and said, surely this man is from the Lord. He's a teacher come from God. Nobody can do what he does if he were not divine. And then they would say, my, he teaches with authority. And they would, they would point to these things. The little children were drawn to him. They uh, came to him. That says a lot about our Lord's demeanor, that little children would come up to him and climb on him, and he readily and gladly accepted them. He was never unmanly or weak. I'm afraid that some of the portraits we see painted of Christ make him less than that. But that's not the, the, the description that we have of him at all. We see him doing the, the work of the Lord. We see him overchanging the money changer's temple. He was never effeminate or weak. He was never, though, at the same time, anything less than a perfect man. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit so that everywhere he went, it was sensed and it was seen. And we, we mentioned when the Lord told Peter, lay down your fishing nets and come follow me. What authority? We'd say, well, that's divine. Yes, but can you imagine someone saying, you leave your creature job and come follow me? And he gave him no time to pray about it or whatever. Matthew, the receipt of custom, making money hand over fist, he could get as much money as he could as long as he paid the, the, the Romans their part. Matthew, leave your desk and come follow me. And they did. What a man our, our, our Savior was. People were drawn to him. The ointment then ran down on Aaron's garments, and that speaks of Christ in his ministry. Aaron's garments were the garments of a ministering priest. And the Lord Jesus came, the Bible tells us, not to be ministered unto, 
but to minister. Now, that's what we're to be in his stead. We're to minister. Now, I know we all need ministering too, but we look to the Lord to do that. If you sit and wait for somebody to be a blessing to you, they may forget about it, I found. They might not do that. We should, but our job is to be a minister. You know what I found? As we go about doing what we know to do and what we're called to do, we will be blessed and be ministered to. We see we get it all wrong. We want somebody to come along and bless us and minister to us. And so he came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. His ministry was Calvary, wasn't it? All Everything else pointed to Calvary. And now he has a continuous ministry to us at the right hand of God the Father. Then the, the Bible says the ointment went down to the skirts of Aaron's garment. That speaks of Christ in his mercy. His mercy comes right down to the lowest point, doesn't it? Right down to where we are. You hear the, the psalmist said, this poor man cried. We think of the lady coming. If I could just touch the hem of his garments... She had to be way down on the ground on her knees to be able to do that, wouldn't she? And so his mercy comes right down to human need and to our sin. Our Lord has a down-to-earth ministry, not some highfalutin thing that no one can figure out, and it seems so far removed from, from people, not just a remote, distant ministry in heaven. He came down. God came to us, God among us, Emmanuel, to where we are. He is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. That's the kind of high priest we have, not separated by the trappings of of ecclesiastical movements and, and, and garb. Our high priest is not away somewhere. He uh, condescends to us. He was made like unto his brethren, and we can come to him and find grace to help in time of need. His ministry is fragrant. We're all... Uh, moved or repelled or whatever by smells. There are smells that we can smell that remind us of times of the year. If, you're, if you smell cinnamon, you think of Christmas, don't you? That's why in all the stores you go into, they've got these pine cones, boxes of pine cones soaked in cinnamon, and it just brings back a warm smell. Do you know if you examine most of perfume, and I'm not a perfume expert, but you'll see common elements of vanilla and uh, cinnamon and those smells that that are comforting to us or that draw us. And then there are things that repel us, aren't there? There are certain odors that, that you, might have sm- you, you might have smelled one time in your life, but it will, if you come across it, it will take you back to that time. There, sm- smell has a way of lodging in our memory. I think I've shared with you, uh, I can still right now smell my first grade teacher's cologne. I don't know what it's called. It may be Jungle Gardenia or whatever, what it was, you know, evening in Paris. But as she would bend over me and help me in my stubborn way, I was writing my letters wrong. And she'd say, no, Chris, this is the way you do it. Now, I want you to do that again. I could just see Miss Wall doing that. And I was a little boy, and I could, you know, you know, I didn't ever say this, but you smell good. And uh, the other day I was in a store just walking, and I, a woman must have had that cologne on. And you know the first thing that came to mind? Miss Wall, my first grade teacher. Now, this, the fragrance there, Now we could go on and on about memory and fragrance, but our Lord, his fragrance of his life was attractive, and we're talking about something more than just, just a smell. Do we draw people to the Lord, or do we repel them? By our attitudes, by our actions, uh, do we uh, represent our Lord in the best possible way? It ran down Aaron's beard. Not just his garments that came all the way down to the 
to where people are. But the, the oil ran down Aaron's beard. And this speaks of Christ in, in, in his members. And although Aaron was not Christ, there are pictures, there are types in the Bible of Christ all throughout the, the Scripture. And, but during Christ's absence and during his own lifetime, Aaron represented Christ to the people, that there had to be a mediator between God and man. Today, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But in that particular time, God used the Aaronic priesthood to remind his people, you can't just sashay into God's presence. Your sin separates you from God. Sin must be dealt with. There must be a mediator. And all that pointed to what? The future work of Christ at Calvary. And so he reminded people of Christ as he ministered to them on Christ's behalf. His ministry was an anointed ministry, a ministry set apart. And the fragrance of that ointment clung to Aaron. He would be anointed with it, and as he would go about the ministry of the Lord, that fragrance would be there. And so it is with us today. We are Christ's representatives on earth. We, in all of our humanness, represent Christ to others. And we carry with us something of that loveliness that belongs to our head. It should be seen in us. We should bear a resemblance of our Savior, shouldn't we? We should be imitators of God. Follow me. Be imitators of me, Paul said, even as I, even as I am a mimicker or an imitator of Christ. When we dedicate little babies here, we remind us, don't we, of our, our dire uh, responsibility and calling to show them Christ. By our, that no member of this church would lead one of these little ones astray by attitude or action. But they could come to any of us and be taught the gospel and be taught the, the ways of the Lord. And we all ought to be a pattern of good works. Well, then we look at the, the manufacture of this ointment. The formula for making it is given by the Lord himself. The exact spices are named. And we know that the parts that are used but the whole of it blended together was God's alone. You see, God uses different parts of things, but the whole of it is his. So it is in the church. We have different members, just like you have different organs of your body, but they, they harmoniously work together as the whole. We might not understand it. We can study the different parts of the body, but the mystery and the chemistry of it being blended together and working together is such an amazing thing. The fragrance of that ointment was spread all over in the outer court at the brazen altar and the, uh, the brazen laver, they were anointed with the same oil that Aaron was anointed with. So all the, the furniture, if you will, of the, the tabernacle would have the same ointment. The holy place, the candlestick, the table, and the altar of incense, which would have its own fragrance, were all anointed with this holy anointing oil. And inside the veil where the altar and the mercy seat stood in that, that place where only the high priest could go, this anointing oil was also applied. Now, the blood would be applied there, wouldn't it, too, on the mercy seat. But there, this, this anointing oil would be applied. And Aaron, the high priest, was anointed with it. So do you see, well, everywhere you went at the tabernacle would be this sweet fragrance. His sons were anointed with it. So everyone there, now, I'm the, I'm not going to be a little bit facetious here, but can you imagine if, if all the benches and everything here had been, the song books had been anointed with this fragrance, and then you as you came in, what the whole place was filled. So the pictures, it all blended together. What a beautiful fragrance it was and influence it was before the Lord. Now, they could not, Aaron's son could not come into the, the Lord's presence 
in the odor of the flesh. And uh, something had to be done. And so God, and all of this, of course, is highly symbolic. They could not have the flesh clinging to them. They had to be washed, and they were before they served. They anointed so that the fragrance of Christ would cling to them. Well, this anointment that we're talking about can't be bought at the Estee Lauder counter or at the pharmacy. This is an anointing of the Holy Spirit. It was made of myrrh and sweet cinnamon, sweet calamus, cassia, and some of these things that are very foreign to us, but must have been exactly what the Lord wanted, all blended together with olive oil. The, the various weights of each precious spice were given and the needed amount of it, uh, of the oil. Upon blending the, the, the whole, all of it together, God pronounced a solemn warning. It must not ever be imitated because in the reason for that, someone didn't say, well, let's just bottle this and sell it to the people. They could have it at home and we could make a lot of money for the building program. No, the anointing oil was particular to the Lord's work. It could not be imitated for it was a person of the type of Christ. He must, by the ministry of his spirit, be poured out on us. He anoints us. We don't anoint ourselves. We can't conjure this up. We can't pass a motion and second it and vote on it that there'll be unity in our family or our church or our nation. You see the supernatural work of the Lord and the yielded hearts of his earnest people. And so uh, he must, the ministry of the Holy Spirit must be poured out to, uh, in our lives to, to make a fragrance like this or there will be nothing no matter how beautiful the sanctuary is, and it's always beautiful this time of the year, isn't it? Uh, or how clean and how nice things may be, how particular we are, how beautiful the, the people sing, every T crossed and I dotted. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. We must much, so much be very well aware of that. And our job is to pray as we come to the Lord's house, O oh Lord, anoint us, bless us. We're in such need of your blessing. Show the lost your mercy. Show them your gospel. Use the pastor. Use the Sunday school teachers. Use the music. Blend it all together. The scripture reading, the praying, everything that's done. That Christ be seen. And that the fragrance of Christ be in our midst. This is not something you conjure up with a praise team. Or even some kind of incantations. Or some kind of program or religious rite or ritual, the blending of the various parts produced a harmonious whole. 500 shekels of this, 250 shekels of that, 250 shekels of this, 250 shekels of the other. All the ingredients, the cassia, the myrrh, the cinnamon, and the calamus. Now, any one of those by themselves and just alone might be strong. But the right proportion, and there must have been a, a right blend because there was different weights, of, or different amounts of it, and we don't fully understand the weights and measures. But the Lord knew exactly just what of this and what of that to blend together. It's like in any recipe uh, that you, you make. Uh, you have to follow the ingredients and do it just exactly as the recipe says, or it won't be. If you leave something, you leave sugar out of a cake, you've got a problem, don't you? Or even the soda. Or something that in and of it, that pinch of salt is important. But you don't want a pound of salt. You want a pinch of salt. And so grandmother knew what she meant when she put that 
that teaspoon there, not a tablespoon, but a teaspoon or a half a teaspoon or whatever it is, but all blended together and, and mixed and put in the oven. Oh, you know, I was raised across the, the folks, the hams that lived across the street. You know, the hams on one side and the lambs on the other side. But the hams over there, Mr. Ham was a baker. And uh, back in that day and time, people worked out of their homes. The basement, he was licensed. The basement of his home was a bakery. Can you imagine a little boy coming home from school? And ever, there's not a little boy on earth who's not just ravenously. I could eat three peanut butter jelly sandwiches when I got home from school. But I had to walk by the Ham's house and wafting out of the basement of the Ham's house were all the manner of wedding cakes and birthday cakes. Have you ever walked by where cakes are being baked and being and starving to death? It was the most amazing smell in all the world. And we got that all the time. It's just like living down, if you went down to the Triangle Park down here near the, uh, the barbecue place, I don't see how those people live there. My wife put on a roast the other night so it would be ready the next day. I woke up every 15 minutes all during, I said, don't do that again. I know you're wanting us to have, I wanted to eat the roast all night long. The fragrance was just something, aren't we, isn't it something how we're moved by this? But what we're talking about here is a supernatural work of the Lord, mixed and blended together, and it resulted in this sweet-smelling oil. This is the unity of the Spirit. You see how precious it is? You see how dependent we are on it? We can't make it, but we need it. We can't produce it. The recipe is the Lord's. We must individually prepare ourselves for it, repent of sin and cleansing, ask the Lord's blessing, come expectantly, meet together, Christ in each of us as believers all blended together with our backgrounds and our differences, personalities into one body. This gracious, unifying work of the Holy Spirit. Isn't the church a miraculous thing? Where would you get all these characters blended together? Would we associate with one another outside of this uh, place? Maybe or maybe not. But in the church you have relationships and paths that cross that wouldn't under probably other circumstances. And this, this is the unity that our Lord looks for and expects to see in his followers. It's very precious. It's very rare. And it's very costly. It does not come by accident. It comes purposefully in a holy dependence upon the Lord. It cannot be counterfeited, cannot be imitated. You can have some syrupy, fake something, that's not the unity of the Spirit. You can say, oh, we have all things in common and use all kinds of platitudes and words. That's not the unity of the Spirit. As those different ingredients were mixed by the specific instruction of the Lord. And remember, where did the recipe come from? They didn't know. They didn't have any idea. The, the, God said, don't you take this and this and this. The recipe came from where? It came from heaven. And so the recipe of all of God's work comes from heaven. It's amazing to me. I hear groups meeting and churches meeting and this church growth group. And every year we see some new fads. Like, like we've got to do this to get people to hear the gospel. And we've got to do this. Like God has never thought of that. Didn't he tell us what to do? Go. That's pretty simple. We learned that in first grade, didn't we? See, spot, go. Go ye. That's me. Where? Into all the world. And what? Tell, herald, preach the gospel to select friends. To every creature. Teaching them. The pattern has been given to us. And we see people trying to, to reinvent it or add to it or make it into something else. 
They were all blended and poured over Aaron and his sons, and then each of them carried with him about that as they went about the Lord's work, that rare fragrance of Christ that spoke of him. And so now Christ is set forth into the world how? We're his hands and feet, aren't we? We're his mouthpiece. Not angels and not even the Lord himself. Oh, how, what a mystery it is that he would choose me to do this. If I were God, and I'm not trying to be facetious or certainly not sacrilegious, I would have chosen more dependable workers, wouldn't you? My wife and I were riding along one day discussing several things. And we both came to the conclusion it's a miracle that God gets anything done seeing what he's got to work with. You know, just think about it. Wouldn't you depend on more dependable? Michael, come here and go pastor Glen Iris Baptist Church. You'll do what I tell you to do. And I won't have to struggle with you. Gabriel, come and lead the singing at Glen Iris. Come and do the heralding. You do this work. No, he didn't do that. He chooses poor, lost, hell-bound sinners like us with all of our faults and hang-ups and frailties. Pours in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We're baptized in Christ at conversion. And then he gives us the anointing of his spirit and says, now go and be my fragrance, my influence in the earth. Do you know that you and I are duty-bound to be the fragrance of the Lord wherever we are? If he's going to be seen, it was because he chooses to use our lives to do so. That rare fragrance of Christ. And so now Christ is set forth to the world by each of us, the body of Christ. Every individual anointed by the Spirit to be a sweet-smelling savior of the Lord in a dead and decaying world. This world stinks, doesn't it? We live in a dumpster. The sewer is open. It's flooding the streets of our city and our home with all the filth and pornography of Hollywood and New York. Everywhere around us, there's a stench of sin and rotting. The, 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 the foundations are being destroyed. And what can the righteous do? Do you know what the righteous can do? They can be the fragrance of Christ in a sewer, rotting, infested world. Then we have an illustration from the secular world as we close this morning. It is as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. Now, if you have never lived in that, that kind of an environment in the Mediterranean, in that vital, hot climate, dew is so precious. It's just like rain. It's a heavy, wet dew that comes at night. And it's a beautiful symbol, dew, as water often is in the scriptures. A dew is a symbol of the Holy Spirit and probably one of the most precious pictures of the Holy Spirit. When you wake up in the morning and see the, the dew on the flowers and glistening in the garden and it's being fed in a way that only God can, can do. It is distilled in the night season and never after a storm. It forms only when all is still and, it, is at, and it, at rest. Strife, then, is an, is an enemy of this precious dew. The rush and the hustle and bustle, the worry and the ceaseless activity that marks our day and people of our day, where we never sit still and, and meditate on the Lord and seek His face. We're never quiet long enough for the Holy Spirit to make us fragrant or have anything to say to a dying world. We never have two sane thoughts on God's Word. And so no wonder we don't have a word to give our coworker when they tell us, I just don't get it. What's the Christmas all about? And if you've not sought the Lord's face and, and, and the, and the, in the private place, you probably won't be astute enough to say anything. You just mumble something. And we, and we, never, we wonder why the unity of the Lord is not among his people. Dew cannot be man. Do you know anybody who can make dew? 
All the, the weather, climate people with all their railings can't change that. It's God's gracious gift to an otherwise dying world. In Hezekiah's day, there had been a momentary display of that spiritual heavenly dew. And the writer had given a unique opportunity to show that uh, what the people of God, what uh, this was all about. Well, we ask for the Lord's blessing, don't we? We must be blessable. We must prepare our hearts, repent of sin, ask Him to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There the Lord commanded the blessing. Even The blessing is commanded by the Lord, not by us commanding it or naming it and claiming it and saying, God, do what you're working our midst. We don't demand the Lord to do anything, do we? The Lord commands it. We plead in, in, for His blessing and have faith that He will do what He says. The psalmist put it like this, and I think Psalm 90, that's a precious psalm, but the last verses 16 and 17 says this. What a fitting prayer to end this psalm. Let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children. Don't we need our children to see God's glory, that there's a God in heaven? And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. Lord, bless your word and make us a fragrant people, we beg in Jesus' name.